everyone. I'm Rosie Ward, and this is Show Up as a Leader. So for today's episode, we're doing something a little different. I feel like the last several weeks and months, I've been bombarded with all kinds of questions. And I thought, you know, rather than answering these individually, why not have a collective conversation? So I decided to put out an invitation to ask me anything to the Show Up as a Leader community. And there was a lot thrown at me. So this episode is for you. I couldn't get to every single question, but I tried to capture the ones that really represented a broad collective set of questions that the community sent at me. And I'll probably do another one of these periodically, or if I have topics that I want to go into in more in depth, I'm sure I will do those. So we're taking a slight break from interviews and we're, we're going to do this. So thank you so much for your questions. And I'm just going to start to take them in order and we'll just see what the heck happens. So I so appreciate all of you chiming in and I hope that this is helpful for you. Okay. So the first question that was asked to me is why should I still work to show up authentically when others are armored and how do I do it? So there's a lot packed into that question. So let me start with, first of all, why we want to show up authentically. So if you've been following my work or following this podcast, you know that we define leadership as maximizing our positive impact on the world by becoming our best fully authentic selves and supporting those around us to break past barriers and step into their greatness. So in other words, we define leadership as a behavior, not a title or a role. And every single one of us has an opportunity to show up as a leader in our life, whether that's in our family, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, the list goes on and on. So I want to unpack this showing up authentically. So in many of these episodes, I ask my guests questions of their self-limiting story and really what does it mean to show up authentically? It's hard work to show up authentically because it's scary. When we show up as our authentic selves, we are being real. We are being true to who we are and it makes us vulnerable. So I use Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability where vulnerability are the emotions we experience when we are faced with uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. And she uses the analogy of Yorina, which an arena moment are those moments or opportunities or experiences in our lives where we show up and we're willing to risk being vulnerable and we can't control the outcome. So I might share my idea. I might ask for help. I might speak up where I don't know if someone's going to judge me. I don't know if I'm going to upset them, but it's being true to to what's in my heart and, and true to who I am. And I think most of us know how exhausting it is when we wear a mask, when we put on armor to protect ourselves and pretend we have it all together because we think if we do that, we can not be subject to judgment and we cannot be subject to ridicule, but it doesn't work. And so living authentically is freeing. Living authentically is what it means to come alive, but it can be scary at times. And so we talk about Living authentically and showing up authentically and showing up as a courageous leader means that we can't control other people's responses and outcomes, but we can control who we're being. And we don't show up into the arena naked. We take two things with us. 
first and foremost, we take our core values, which is why I'm such an advocate for we have to do the work to identify our core values and operationalize those into clear behavioral anchors so we know when we're in alignment with those values and when we're not. That anchors us. It acts as a lighthouse. It's the calm in the midst of that storm. So we take our values with us into the arena and we replace that armor with grounded confidence, meaning we move from judgment and we lean into curiosity. We lean into listening more, to pause more, those types of things. And we look at the bigger picture in the bigger context. And so we might choose to show up authentically, yet our coworker or our neighbor or our spouse or our friend or our kids are armored. And I think that, first of all, we lead by example. So when we show ourselves authentically, usually the natural response to others is empathy and connection. And I will say that it gives other people permission to do the same. And if we're going to double down and say, well, I'm going to armor up because so-and-so is armoring up. Well, then it's just, first of all, we're not operating from the highest level of our brain. We're downshifted into kind of the, the cave woman, caveman part of our brain and the amygdala hijack. And we don't get anywhere. Nothing productive comes from that spot. Think about a two-year-old having a tantrum or something like that. And so if we, in spite of what's going on around us, we can say, you know what? I'm still going to show up authentically. One, we can look in the mirror and, and sleep well at night because we're being true to who we are. But it really sets a different tone. You think about kind of that pay it forward or ripple effect. And so I think that it's not always going to be easy because let's be honest, there are some places that are not psychologically safe to show up authentically where we have to be guarded. So we, we've got to know those nuances and balances. Um, I think that we need to be very real. There are some places that we can't take off our armor and there's some places that we need to be able to. And ideally our home we can, but not everyone's in that position. Ideally our workplaces, I, I believe all workplaces should be a place where we don't have to armor up, but we need to understand that context and that it may not be psychologically safe. That being said, I think if you tiptoe in the waters, and it might just be as simple as, hey, I'm going to share an idea, or hey, I'm going to speak up in a meeting, or hey, I'm going to ask for help, or I'm going to admit I don't know the answer. So we can just test the waters of where are those boundaries where we can be more authentic so that we're not completely shut down. And so that's a long-winded answer to say that we we can't wait for our circumstances to be perfect before we decide to show up as an authentic, courageous leader. Sometimes we have to be the ones to take the first step. And I think in a neighborhood, in a community, especially in a workplace, we need somebody to go first. Uh, so take all the context into consideration, but I think we still need to do the work and not wait for somebody else braver or more qualified. Why can't we be the ones to set the tone? Okay, next question. How can I make a difference within my organization when I don't have the title or the authority? So my answer to this piggybacks on the first question, because again, we have to take into context. If we are in a toxic work environment, if we're in a place that is not psychologically safe, it doesn't mean we still can influence, but we have to be mindful of the boundaries and where we can and cannot go. So what I would say is that you can start with just your one single coworker. Think about this. If you choose to show up authentically, if you choose to be real and ask for help or offer help or lean into curiosity rather than judgment or really truly listen presently, 
side plug, listen to a previous episode of a conversation I had with Wendy Lynch on listening. But there are so many ways that we can show up that makes a positive difference for somebody else. And when we do that, we influence how they how their day goes. We influence their ability to take the next step. Who we're being has a profound impact on others. You know those people that, you know, you're just around them and like they just light up the room and the energy and you want to be around them because they inspire you, they energize you, they encourage you, they fulfill you. And then there are those people that are just the energy sucks. You know, I often joke they're the people who bright, brighten the room when they leave, right? I mean, we all know those people and it's awful and exhausting to be around them. So why can't you be one of those people that lifts others up, that energizes, that inspires, that encourages? And yes, we're going to have bad days. It's not about not having a bad day, but that's how we can make a difference. You know, if you see an opportunity for an improvement, why can't you speak up and share your idea? Or if you don't understand why something is done a certain way, sometimes just simply raising the question can be hugely influential because someone might say, you know, I have no idea why we've been doing it that way. Thank you for raising that question. Maybe we should take a look at that. There's so much holding back because we either make assumptions that somebody else is taking care of it or we think that our voice doesn't matter, but we've got to cut that narrative out and we've got to just say, you know what, I can speak up, I can be curious, I can listen, I can focus on how can I make a positive impact today with those people either physically around me if you're going into a workplace or around me in a virtual environment. Am I taking a moment to reach out to someone I work with just to check in on them as a human being or to say, hey, I care about you or how's it going or whatever it might be? Are we doing that enough? So there's just lots of little small steps that we can take that can start to have that influence. And then I think it can grow from there. It's kind of like a ripple effect. And if you start to become known as somebody who asks good questions, who leans in, who isn't afraid to back down from difficult conversations, who is open and curious, that'll go a long, long way. So I think we have to get this idea out of our head that a title gives us anything, that a job description gives us anything, because we all know people who have those and they are not leaders in any way, shape or form. So we have to stop limiting ourselves with this mindset of, well, I'm just a this person or I'm just a that person and start looking at what can I do today in this moment, in this meeting, in this interaction to have the best impact possible. Okay, next question is getting more to the organizational level. So the challenges of the pandemic this past year have invited or required organizations to reimagine work. How can we create a high performance and accountable culture while offering more flexibility? So this is a big question. There's, there's a lot packed into that. And I would say, again, there's not a one size fits all. I will say that I love that with all of the suckiness and challenges and ickiness of this past year, everything from, yes, the pandemic to the racial reckoning and social justice crisis that's bubbled up and everything in between, I love that organizations are looking at this more intently, at least thoughtful organizations, not everyone, right? And so I would think that thoughtful organizations that are really wanting to reimagine work, because I think that is the opportunity here. Maybe organizations that thought, oh, we never could have a remote work policy or never work from home. Well, they were forced to with the pandemic and really rethinking everything from our physical environment to how we treat people to the workloads we have. And so I think that 
it can't be done in a bubble. So we always quote Margaret Wheatley that people only support what they've helped to create. And I think if you're not reaching out and talking to your employees, having listening sessions and finding out what are their needs now? You know, do they have kids that are still in hybrid learning? What have they found out about where they're most productive? And really finding a win-win for everybody. And maybe it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. But really, it cannot be done in isolation. It cannot be done with a bunch of senior leaders sitting off in a room somewhere. It cannot be done with some committee that was charged with this. It cannot be done without the input of the people whose lives it impacts. And so I think that you need to, whether it's listing sessions and focus groups, I mean, surveys are okay if that's the best way to do it, but really listening to the voices of people. The reason I say surveys are okay, it's a nice start, but sometimes we've come up with survey questions that are missing a huge source of feedback that we can only get by actually talking to people and by listening to people more importantly, not necessarily talking to them, but talking with them and listening. So I think you need to kind of find out what do they need. I think that it is kind of doubling down on and getting really, really clear about your organization's purpose or why and your organization's core values. Have you taken those core values that were on a wall or on a website and operationalized them for your employees so that they know what behaviors are in alignment, what behaviors are out of alignment, right? And they have a filter, a very clear filter of how to show up. Are your formal people leaders good at setting clear expectations with people, right? Not doing it to them. I will tell you one of the things that I see break down more often than not in numerous leadership coaching conversations that I've had over the past year plus is a failure to set clear expectations. That my idea as a people leader or manager's expectation of what a good job looks like is different than what you is. I have a different sense of urgency of how quickly you should respond to emails or how quickly you should get something done than you do. And there's frustration because I haven't checked that out with you. I haven't had that conversation with you to say, this is the understanding that I'm operating under. How about you? Right? This is what I was thinking. How about you? And can we make sure we're on the same page? So literally a really simple way to do that is instead of at the end of a conversation saying, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Or are we on the same page? Mm -hmm. Any kind of yes or no question is literally check for understanding and say, you know, I want to make sure we're on the same page. I want to make sure that I communicated clearly. I want to make sure I didn't lose something in translation. So can you humor me and repeat back to me what your understanding is of next steps? And then as the other person is repeating that to you, you can find out if something got missed. By the way, you can use this in parenting. You can use this with a coworker, right? Anytime you have two people, you're trying to be on the same page about expectations, how we go about setting those expectations, mutuality, a lot of times, maybe maybe not with parenting, but with, with at the workplace, certainly, and how you check for understanding is really, really critical because those pieces get missed, and then there's a whole host of unnecessary frustration. I say that because if we're going to have a high performance and accountable culture while having that flexibility, so one, we got to understand what people need because that's really where the flexibility comes in. Are you able to ebb and flow and flex and adapt based on what's going to work best to enable people to be the best version of themselves, right? And bring their best self into the work environment, whether it's physical or virtual, and have something left to give for their family and recognizing the competing commitments they might have. So you've got to have their feedback. And then you've got to really look at accountability. It's a shared accountability. So it starts with expectations. It starts with clarity of your purpose, clarity of your 
operationalize core values, and then that's what you anchor to make decisions on. Um, and so if it's not this shared environment, that's where I think things go astray. And a lot of organizations, I feel when they're struggling in this area and they're trying to reimagine work, they're not including all the stakeholders. They're not including the stakeholders whose voices matter. And they're trying to figure it out for another person rather than let's collectively figure it out with each other. So there's my long-winded answer for that one. Hopefully it's helpful. Okay, next question is, I think I'm gonna have to give a little bit of a definition based on this question. So I will after I read the question to you. When I'm looking at the world in a new paradigm way, but I'm working with leaders and clients who look at the world in an old paradigm way, how do we talk about important issues? Specifically, this idea of work flexibility and working from home. So obviously, this kind of piggybacks on the previous question about reimagining work and flexibility, but I want to talk about this idea of paradigms. So any of you who have been following our work know that in our first book, How to Build a Thriving Culture at Work, which came out in 2015, we talk about old paradigm versus new paradigm. And we do this in our 11-week training course, Thriving Workplace Culture Certificate, which I think this came from one of our TWCC graduates. But for those of you who aren't familiar with that language, really briefly, old paradigm, we really literally go back 400 years to the predominant worldview. So a paradigm is that lens or that worldview that shapes how we show up, right? It's the filter that we have. We all have them about various things. And if you go back 400 years ago, the predominant worldview was really that earth and everything on it was like a giant machine, a giant clock. It was very mechanistic. And so when you look at this mechanistic worldview, if you think about like, what is a machine? What, what is a clock? You can break things down to their component parts. You fix the machine. You understand it by breaking stuff up, analyzing it, et cetera. So you start to look at the sciences of the time. You start to even look at the model of health at the time. This is where the biomedical health model came in. It's very much all about reductionist control the machine. You start to see very hyper-masculine traits of control, power, patriarchy come into play. And so when you think about anything related to change, it's all about this, how can we control? How can we get people to do things, right? It's all about control and power. And what we do is we talk about a whole bunch of new sciences, which I'm not going to get into here. When you look at everything from quantum physics to chaos theory to tons and tons of research largely led by uh, DC and Ryan when it comes to motivation, what we understand about new theories of change, all those types of things start to inform a different worldview. And what we start to realize is that the world is not a giant machine, that the world is really holistic and it's relationship oriented and everything is interrelated with everything else. And so we start to look at the complexity of the universe, if you will, and recognize that you know, it's not just about physical health and biomedical risk factors. It's mind, body, spirit. It's mind, body, spirit in an organization. When we start to look at the relationship between people and the relationship between things, it's really about understanding that if we're going to approach change from that paradigm that's more aligned with newer sciences, that we need to include people in the process. And instead of trying to control them, we really try to include them and we look at how can we foster better thinking and how can we really nurture autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So that's what I mean by new paradigm lens. So to give you that context, so if you have someone who's really operating from this new paradigm lens of recognizing the complexities and 
the interconnectedness of things and people and really nurturing autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And you have somebody who's really in that, no, we just need to control people. They need to just do what they're told. We'll just break it down. Let's oversimplify. It can be challenging to, to have those conversations. And so I will say a shameless plug, and I think I can put this in the show notes. We actually have a white paper about how to start to have these paradigm shifting conversations and kind of get into conversation starters and things to help you. That aside, and again, I'll put the link in the show notes, I think that you really have to always meet people where they are and that people are doing the best that they can with what they have. And so if that's their paradigm, it's not making them wrong because that's their paradigm. It's recognizing that paradigms are really hard to change and they don't change easily. So instead of standing in rightness or judgment, I need to take a deep breath. I need to pause. I need to lean into curiosity and go, hmm, I wonder why they see things that way. Tell me more, right? So if they're thinking about, well, people shouldn't be working from home. I'm making this up because I don't know the exact context around this question. But you know what? If, if we're like, nope, as soon as people can, they need to be back in because it's the only way we know they're working. I would say, that's interesting. Tell me more. How have you managed uh, productivity, performance, expectations over the last 12 plus months during the pandemic when people were forced to be home? What was different? What did you learn worked well? What did you learn didn't? And so I think leaning into curiosity in these questions and doing the, tell me more where you're coming from. Tell me how you see it. Tell me what's worked. Tell me what hasn't. Sometimes can reduce that defensiveness can reduce that barrier to them be able to have some of those conversations. And then I would go back to an answer I gave earlier of, well, I get that you see it that way. Have you gotten that feedback from your employees or have you listened to what they want or need? And really just having a conversation that maybe there's an opening to say, because if we're not including people in that, as things start to open back up and certain industries and businesses start to rebound, if they were struggling the talent pool is going to be greater and people are competing for top talent. And what if your best people left because they felt that things were too rigid here or they weren't listened to? So I would ask questions of how are you listening to your employees? What kind of feedback have you got from them? What has you feeling like this doesn't work or what has you feel like it does work? So I would approach those conversations with curiosity and questioning and inquiry rather than judgment. And I think then you might be able to um, at least have a space for some different thinking. So anytime you have two different paradigms bumping up against one another, trying to convince them you're right, trying to sell them, trying to shove something down someone's throat, let's be honest, if we're on the receiving end, not going to work so well. So listen, pause, be curious. You might have to have multiple conversations, um, but ultimately we have to meet people where they are and be curious about the lens that they are using Um, And again, that white paper might give some additional nuggets. So hopefully that's helpful. Okay, so there's another big question that uh, came up. So I'm just going to read it. I was working with a team and inviting the moving forward slash visioning discussion to help them move forward from this past year and really look at what's next. Yet there was incredible stuckness on the team with some negativity and victim mentality and saying that goal setting is really only for people who have privilege and money and don't have any obstacles. So the question is, how do you deal with that? 
<laughs> there's, there's a lot in that. So my first thought is, again, to move to curiosity. Well, for the person or persons that were really kind of pushing back, tell me more. Uh, because what I hear is a couple things. One, it could just be someone who is really burned out. I think we have to recognize that this past year has been one trauma after another, and we know that mental and emotional health and well-being are struggling in our country and really in our world right now. And if we try to pretend that doesn't exist or you know, skirt around the issue, it's not going to do any good to anybody else. And we all respond differently in the face of stress and anxiety. Some people are over-functioners. I am definitely one of those where I can just plow in and get stuff done, get stuff done, get stuff done. But it also means that I'm not giving myself the space to feel and to grieve or to have whatever emotions I need to have to actually process what the heck has happened this past year. I finally, I've had my moments, but that's what an over-functioner does. And on the surface, they look fine. But on the inside, like, just wait, because something at some point is going to give, right? We can't, it's just like, whether you've had a loss, whether it's a death of a loved one or loss of a relationship or loss of a job, there's or loss of a pet, there's grieving that goes with it. And if we don't give ourselves permission to grieve, it will hit us at some point. We can only stuff emotions down so long and so far before they've got to come out somewhere. And unfortunately, the only way through these emotions is to lean into them and work through them. So this is where I love Mark Brackert's work, Permission to Feel, really becoming more emotionally literate is so, so helpful because we we have to learn how to name our emotions. We have to learn how to recognize them and then lean into them and be curious and process through them. We can't go around them and pretend they don't exist. And then you have other people who become almost paralyzed by the emotions and you look at them and like, can't you do anything? They just kind of become underfunctioners. And either either kind of extreme is not necessarily... Um, helpful, but it's very real and very human. And so I share all this because you don't know what someone's going through. You don't know what their experiences are like, but we have to recognize that there's a collective trauma at varying degrees that people have had over this past year and beyond, and that people are processing things differently and people have different resources to be able to process these things. So we've got to just see them as a human being and think, gosh, you know, they're doing the best that they can. I wonder I wonder what has them respond that way. And if there's burnout, we just recognize, you know what? If I am fried and I have no mental space to give anything else, the last thing I want to think about is yet another change. Or last thing, I I can't even think past tomorrow, let alone what do I want things to be like a month from now or a year from now. I literally, that part of my brain is not working right now. Because all of that comes from this prefrontal region of our brain. You know, oversimplify things. But comes from that region of higher level brain functioning, if you will. And when we're in chronic stress and burnout, that part of our brain is purposely not working very well. We are into the the caveman, cave woman, that amygdala hijack part of our brain, that fight, flight, or freeze, right, to try to help us survive and help us just cope in the moment. So no, I cannot vision. No, I can't even think because I literally don't have the capacity. So that's my first thing as I go into, might there be some burnout? And can you just you know, give them space and go get, it might be hard to see that or tell me more. That also then leads me into the second thing that comes in my mind when I hear that is might there be some instances of chronic scarcity going on? So in a previous podcast episode, I interviewed Linda Riddell, who has a wonderful 
experiential game, if you will, called Getting By and really talks about the cognitive load for people living in poverty um, with this chronic scarcity mindset and all the different things that it's not just about money, it's all these other things. And so when someone's making a comment about only privileged people, you know, um, have money and can make goals and whatnot and don't have any obstacles, it makes me think that maybe this might be someone who is living in poverty, even though they're at a workplace, right? We don't know what their financial circumstances are. And maybe that cognitive load is too much for them. So that's another thought that comes to mind. And, and I would say Linda's has some great tips for how we can actually be more helpful to people who are experiencing that chronic scarcity and that chronic cognitive load. The other thing that comes to mind is when someone says that they're, you know, it's only for people who don't have obstacles. I remember when the person was asking me this question, I laughed and I said, well, that's an interesting story because I don't know anybody that doesn't have obstacles, even people who are successful or setting goals. Like obstacles are a real part of life. It's how we view them and, and how we incorporate them and how we find a path through them or around them. Um, so again, there, there's probably some mindset stuff. It could just be frustration. It could just be apathy. Um, but the other thing that comes to mind, and I'll put this in the show notes as well, if you're not familiar with Stephen um, Cartman's drama triangle, we use this a lot in our work. Basically, if you imagine a triangle, there's kind of three roles. There's the hero, there's the victim, and there's the villain. And when I hear some of this stuff, really what comes to me is someone's playing the role of the victim. When I'm in the role of the victim, I view myself as being at the effect of at the effect of the pandemic, at the effect of the organization. Like I have no control. I have no say. Um, and so what happens is I end up feeling really disempowered and I kind of deflect responsibility. Um, usually there's a, a declaration of pain and suffering, which sounds like maybe this person or these people were uh, communicating. Um, and, and really just this is why I can't have what I want, right? Like I don't have privilege. I don't have money. Um, I have too many obstacles. And so they really, it's waiting for someone else to fix the problem. So when you hear someone in victim role, they're going to say things like it's too hard or I don't have a choice or it's just the way it is or I can't or it's not fair or there's not enough or they, they did this to me or I don't know how or there's no point. Um, and so when we think about that, one of the things that I always try when people are in that victim role is to say, I hear you. I get us frustrating. If this goal or this project or this whatever was going to work. Give me three examples of how you think it could work or give me three examples of it working. So you're trying to help shift their mindset to give me a, an idea of what would make this be a yes for you or what would make this energizing for you or where you could see getting behind this. So you're trying to just kind of help create a space of, again, what's their feedback What's their thoughts? Can you bring them into it? Even if it's more short-term, recognizing the chronic scarcity, perhaps, or the burnout or whatever. So there's a lot with that, but I would just say, again, um, you got to meet the people where they are. Listen. Be curious about what their experiences are. And if it's burnout for real, how can we maybe help? Hey, get it. It's okay. You know, maybe they just need a break. Maybe they need some self-care. Maybe they need some space. Maybe it's not the right time to vision. If they're really exhibiting that victim type of thinking and victim type of behaviors, then again, what are some ways this could be a yes? How else could you see this working? What if this obstacle wasn't there? Humor me. If you had a magic wand and that obstacle wasn't there, what, what would you see as possible? So you're really trying to help kind of get, create a space where that limited thinking can create an opening for maybe something new to emerge. So hopefully that's helpful.
the next question that I got was, we know this past year has taken a great toll on us mentally and emotionally. Organizations seem to be primarily addressing this by focusing on the self-care aspect and personal responsibility by offering resources people can do to help themselves. But we know that's only part of the equation. What can be done at the team level where managers set the tone and then the next level up with top leaders and organizational policies? Okay, this is a great one because we always talk about the inextricable interconnectedness of organizational and individual well-being. And so what I have seen, and I get it, but a lot of organizations over you know the past year have looked at all kinds of emotional and mental health resources. And so we're going to put in an extra employee assistance program, or we're going to give you access to additional counselors, or we're going to bring in you know, this new program. And that's all fine and dandy. I'm not saying that's not great stuff, but that gets to what this person is asking of. This goes back to the person of here, you use this and fix yourself. And we're not taking in the context of what's going on in the broader world, the broader organization, et cetera. And so I think offering that stuff without looking at some of the other layers is not going to be that helpful. And it could even be resented depending on the culture and the climate of the organization. So I would say, and this is very simple and very tactical, but like at the team level, this is where your formal people leaders set the tone. So yes, everybody can show up as a leader. And if someone actually has managerial or leadership responsibilities, there's an additional responsibility that they have. We know that psychological safety and culture ultimately reside at that local team level. We all know what it's like to have a crappy-ass boss. I mean, look at the movie Horrible Bosses, Horrible Bosses 2. Think about The Office, the spoof on it. It sucks when you have a bad boss. And it means we, a lot of times we shut down. There's not a psychologically safe space where people feel like they can say they're struggling, where they, they can ask for help, or they stop giving their ideas because they feel like there's no point because they're gonna be, there's going to be retaliation or they're not going to be heard, and so they just shut down. So... One, I think that anyone with formal people leadership responsibility needs to be regularly, authentically, genuinely checking in with their people as human beings, whether you're leading a remote team or an in-person team. I see people leaders get really stuck on the to-dos and the tasks and meetings and they forget about checking in with their people. I've been guilty of this myself. But checking in with them of, you know, how are you doing this week? What's going on? And taking a genuine, genuine interest in them and understanding what their experiences are like, what they need, what's on their plate, where they're feeling energized this week, where they might be struggling. Because without that, it's going to be really hard to have anything else. And so if then you're creating that relationship with your people, you know, you set the tone. So if I'm a people leader and I am sending emails at one in the morning or I am sending emails at 4 a.m. or I'm sending them on weekend or responding, even if I say don't, no need to respond till Monday, I am setting a unspoken expectation that you need to be working as hard as I am or you need to be working hours that are insane as I am. So, you know, you can delay an email and send it later. You can have a thought if that's how you work, fine. You draft an email, but then you don't need to send it until a normal hour of the day. The other thing is really looking at meetings. So we hear a lot about Zoom fatigue, especially those that are working virtually. 
Um, and so I know people who have created really this process of having buffer time in between their meetings. So going back in every standing meeting on their calendar, if it's an hour long, they're shortening it to 50 minutes or even 45 minutes to allow that buffer time. And you know what? You can end up what would have taken an hour. Most people can then end up getting done in that 45 or 50 minutes. They're taking 30-minute check-in meetings and shortening them to 20 or 25 minutes. Really trying to say everyone needs that space to kind of close down one frame of thought and be ready to be present for the next meeting, to have a bio break, to check an email, those types of things. And most people are scheduling back to back to back to back to back to back. They're working longer hours than they did when they went into an office, and they're fried. So I think... If a manager or leader does that and actually tells their people, whether you work, you manage your own calendar, you work with an admin and you communicate, hey, I'm doing this. And like, um, I know, I know several leaders who've been doing this and you want, you cancel it, cancel the meeting, set a new recurring meeting and really try to set the tone of this is how I'm going to manage my schedule. And I'm going to encourage you all to do the same and then managing your time well throughout the meetings. Um, others do no meeting Mondays or no meeting Fridays, picking a day where as much as possible, we don't schedule meetings or even try to accept meetings those days. And those become your work days, because if your work week is just jam packed with meetings, when do you get stuff done? So those are some little tangible tips that can happen at that local team level to help with creating psychological safety, to help find out what's going on to help say, yes, I'm going to support you in finding that work-life um, integration, that work-life harmony, and really trying to support some processes and procedures to help you have some structure that, that works for you. And then I would say on the organizational level, this gets into a conversation I have regularly with clients, is what are your guiding principles of leadership? What I've been finding is all the requests that we get for leadership development, I ask this question and, you know, like, how do you determine who becomes a people leader in your organization or, or who you develop if you're looking at, your, what do you call them, high potential or next generational leaders? Like, how do you determine who those people are? And the, the current leaders you have, how do you determine where they develop and where they don't? And guiding principles of leadership really are just that. They become these guideposts of here's what we believe from a leadership perspective, and then all of our leadership practices or competencies, all of our developmental offerings anchor to that. So as an example, as an organization, if you have a guiding principle that nobody, regardless of seniority or role or title, is above development, well, then nobody should be in a manager or supervisor level who thinks, oh, I don't need a coach or that's a waste of time, or I don't need to go to this program because I'm good. The most effective leaders regularly, consistently continue to work on their own growth and development. It's a journey. It, there's not an end line. Um, another guiding principle that I regularly suggest that they include are, I am open to both receiving and giving clear feedback. A lot of times we're not that great at giving feedback. Well, guess what? There's developmental work we can do to teach people to be better at giving and receiving feedback, but that needs to perhaps be a guiding principle. So the, the list goes on, like trust people, have good intent. That might feed into some of the workplace flexibility stuff. So if someone has a mindset that unless I see them working or can control them, then, you know, they, they're not doing a good job. Well, there's a problem there. So anyway, I think that on the organizational level, work needs to be done to make sure whatever they are for your organization, that there are clear guiding principles, that those guiding principles anchor everything else. And then that feeds into then how leaders show up at the team level. 
I would say if you are a people leader listening to this, you don't need to wait for those, however, to start to do the work, to be intentional about how you show up for your team. Because remember, culture and psychologically safety are ultimately built team by team, and you have the biggest difference for that. Okay. Next one is specific to those who work in the space of well-being. This is a lot, a lot of our community that goes through our TWCC. We also have leaders in HR professionals and benefits professionals, but we have a large group of our well-being peeps. So this is for you. As well-being professionals, we have to move beyond the traditional focus on physical health and programs. How can we focus on what matters most right now and be more strategic to address what people need? Okay, this is a big one. And I would say as a well-being professional, this is your opportunity to lead and influence positive change and really show up as a leader. I've said this so many times, but so often we limit ourselves by our role. Well, they're not going to listen to me or I don't have influence at the C-suite or I don't have influence with this level of person in my client if I'm a consultant. And one, we already know that physical health and well-being is nothing compared to all the other things going on. We know that the social determinants of health, so where we live geographically and our genetics and, you know, our financial status and socioeconomic status and all these other things play a huge role in our well-being. The health of the organization plays a huge role with our well-being. The quality of the formal people leadership in the organization plays a huge role in my well-being. How much broccoli I'm eating and how many steps I take, is that important? Yeah, it's a microcosm of importance compared to everything else. And so I would say that even though the temptation is still to do these biomedical risk factor programs, so if your organization is still making you take an outdated health risk assessment and take your blood and shuffle into these programs to get you to get more steps and move more and eat more vegetables, like it's it's time to come into the 21st century because that stuff does not work and there's lots of non-vendor sponsored research that shows that. That set aside, I think, as well-being professionals, you got to start by building relationships. We always say this isn't a solo journey. So who can you start engaging, perhaps, in those paradigm-shifting conversations? Are you listening to the employee population and having, again, listening sessions and focus groups with them about what matters most to them? Right. So just like earlier when we were talking about the the flexible work arrangements and what do they need, are we asking them what what matters to them? You know, maybe what they want are some financial well-being resources. Maybe they want some boost and enhancement in their career and development. Maybe they really are feeling disconnected and they're wanting more emphasis on how can we socially reconnect with one another as human beings because we've been so isolated this past year. And so I think rather than thinking about things at a programmatic level, like what do they need and what's a short-term program or intervention we can put into play, I think it's listening to what they need, looking at the bigger context, and then you have to engage other stakeholders to say, okay, as we look at, for example, maybe returning back to the workplace, or as we look at reimagining our work, or as we look at kind of what this means for our organization, as we are doing that, are we also considering what people need to be well and whole? right, to be able to help us further our purpose, to help us live into that reimagined future. And if we're not supporting them and what they need to do that, it's going to not work so well. And so I think if you want to look at how do you be more strategic, it's are you asking those questions to understand what the end users of programs and policies and resources want and need? 
Are you taking a good hard look at just because you had a program or a strategy in place or were locked in with a contract with a vendor or provider, you know, it's, it's time to rethink everything. And it's time to really look at what is going to make sense and have the conversations with people who are helping to guide the strategy, who are working with people leadership, with onboarding, with recruiting, and start to have a collective conversation about the human experience at work. And from the well-being lens, it's what does it look like to help them be as whole as possible in that experience? So I think it starts with the building relationships, having the conversations, and being willing to take a step back. And you know what? Even if you created those programs to hit a pause button and go, just because we were doing this, like let's let's just hit a reset button and imagine we have a blank slate. I think I wrote an article about this. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, and then last but not least, uh, speaking of purpose and operationalizing values, the last question I'll address for today is if I have done the work to clarify my own personal why, how do I align it to the organization's mission, vision, values, or their why? So this one is interesting because I think it depends on the organization you work at. So first of all, if you've done the work to clarify your own personal why and your how and your what, like your White House, basically, awesome, golden, makes such a huge difference. Um, as a plug, we now have our public offering of Build a Lighthouse Workshop, which I'm super, super excited about. I'll also put a link in the show notes, but it's transformative. It's a game changer. And whether or not you work in an organization that has their own clarity, to have that for yourself is is awesome. So let's say you've done that, or let's say you come to our workshop or you've done other work and you have that for yourself. Well, if your organization actually really has clarified its purpose and its values, I think you look at where do you see what lights you up, what fulfill you, fulfills you, what allows you to show up as your authentic self, and where, where does that intersect with what the organization is trying to achieve? Because if there's not that alignment to some degree, if you feel like a square peg in a round hole, it's, it's going to be really challenging. It doesn't mean it can't be done, but the more mismatch that is, I think the more you're going to struggle. And so you might be looking at where's an organization where I feel like I can bring my gifts and, and I can bring my magnificence and I can really nurture it and you know, make, make the difference I want to make, make the impact I want to make. And when you feel that synergy or you feel that alignment, it's so different. It's so rewarding. So I think if you're struggling a bit, it might be looking at, well, what's the backstory of the organization, even if they or you know, what do they say their mission is or what do they say their values are and, and, and where can you see that alignment? And maybe having a conversation with your colleague or a conversation with your leader about where you could see yourself adding more value or what lights you up. Um, if it's safe to do so, I know with, with people that I've worked with, I've asked them to just bucket out their work and say, what are the things that are on your plate that fulfill you? List them out. What are the things that are on your plate you're neutral about? You know, you could go either way. And what are the things that are on your plate that actually drain you? Right. And if you start to look at, if there's more things on your plate that drain you or then fulfill you, that's, that's a little unsettling and maybe there's an opportunity there. But then the last bucket I asked people to look at is, okay, if it was there, what's an opportunity where you see you could bring more value or you could leverage more of your gifts or do things you're not doing now that interest you? And you just kind of are mapping this out. And if you do that, one, you'll get clarity for yourself of kind of where's their alignment or not or missed opportunities. And then if stars align, hopefully you can actually use that and have a conversation 
with whoever your leader is about, you know, I was just looking at my work and most organizations, if they're decent, want to nurture the good people that they have and help them find ways to leverage their strengths and leverage their talents. If it's a toxic organization, again, maybe you realize there's a lot in that bucket of what I don't like doing and I don't see an opportunity to have that conversation here. Well, then you might have to figure out a survival mode until you can find a better spot, um, which sucks in the meantime, but that's the reality. Or, you know, maybe you realize, oh, I got to start looking. I think we have a section in our book, Rehumanizing the Workplace, that addresses the should I say, stay or should I go? And I'm a big believer of, you know, if the work environment is okay, even if it's not perfect, and they're trying to do the right things and they're working and you feel some energy where you think you can make a difference, you think you could influence positive change, then maybe you keep at it until you're just exhausted or you feel like you're beating the head against the wall or you're not seeing momentum. If it's a toxic environment, you don't feel you can make a change anymore, your list of parsing out your work is so full of things you hate to do and it's just, it's an energy suck, then maybe it's time to, to look at what's next. Okay, so then the last request uh, for me was I ask these questions of all of my guests and so it's only fair that these get turned on to me. So the question that I asked all my guests that I guess now I'm asking myself, what's a self-limiting story you tell yourself and how do you move beyond it so you can still show up as a leader? I will tell you as much as I have done this work on myself, I always say I'm an ongoing recovering perfectionist and I'm an ongoing recovering people pleaser. So I think the story that I tell myself still is like, it's not going to matter, or I'm going to do this and it's not going to make a difference, or who cares, or who am I to do this? I have this narrative of like, who gives a rat's behind? Rosie, you're going to put all this effort. No one cares, you know, whatnot. It doesn't matter anyway. Um, so when that shows up, um, how do I move beyond it? I think I just, you know what I do is I literally, I have a folder in my email in all my drives that I call warm fuzzies. And when someone has sent me a really nice, like you're making a difference or whatever it might be, I keep it in there. I also have a file folder with handwritten cards that I've been given over the years. And I will say when I'm having a crappy day, when that narrative is just trying to take over, I usually want to take a deep breath and I will boost myself with one of those warm fuzzies and remind myself, you know what, Rosie, this makes a difference even if like one person listens to your podcast or you help one person with that program, th that's going to have a ripple effect. So get over yourself. So I kind of have ways to boost myself up. So I'm telling you, if you get down on yourself, if you don't already have it, keep, keep a file folder somewhere. Keep a warm fuzzies file when you have those days. Um, what's impactful? What's one impactful way that you are showing up as a leader at work these days? Um, I would just say that I feel like I am just really trying to speak straight and I am leaning in with curiosity, but I'm really practicing the clearest kind mantra. And I'm really also trying to practice the boundaries mantra or boundaries practice and modeling what I ask other leaders to do modeling what I think is really important. Um, and and I will say in doing that, I feel like I'm also coming up with a lot of new ways that we can service um, our clients, our communities. So I just, I feel really good about um, trying to show up as a more boundaried version of myself and trying to be really clear with feedback, clear with expectations, um, and leaning into the hard conversations that 
aren't fun to have, but necessary. Um, what's one impactful way you are showing up as a leader in your personal life these days? Um, you know, I'm also trying to do the same on the home front. And I think, you know, I'm raising a 10 year old and he's going through that preteen stuff. And there are some days my husband and I are just like, oh my God, like it's so rough. And my mom reminded me like all of you children, I swear those were the hardest years. And maybe you'll disagree if you have teenagers. I don't know, but it's, there are good days and there are bad days. And so I think I am just trying to be mindful of all the lessons my son has taught me and be present when I'm with him and listen to him when I'm with him. Um, and I, I really anchor myself in Brene Brown's wholehearted parenting manifesto. And I'm just really trying to not screw him up as much as I can and trying to be, um, you know, I'm not going to be perfect. I screw up, but I'm trying to own it when I screw up. And I'm just really trying to focus on these are really important years and trying to be a kick-ass mom if I can. Okay, so this is the quick question section that I end all podcasts uh, for my guests. So here we go. And honestly, I haven't given these thought because I just asked them to everyone else. So we're going to see what comes out today. Uh, fill in the blank. Living authentically is, I'm going to say, hard, necessary, and rewarding. When the world is presenting an opening, but you don't feel like showing up as a leader, what do you do? Um, I feel like I go in the corner in the fetal position and suck my thumb. No, <laughs> um, I will tell you that when I don't feel like it, I actually give myself permission and say, you know what? I can just like go veg out with, uh, watching the video or a little word game on my phone or scroll Facebook. I try not to get sucked too much, but I recognize sometimes I might just need a break and it's okay if I don't feel like showing up and then I try to get myself grace. When's the last time you were courageous and how did you show up? Um, I would say actually earlier today, I had to have a radical candor conversation with someone and give feedback uh, that wasn't easy to give. Um, but I think it's going to strengthen the the working relationship. And I feel like every time I have to have one of those, um, I still don't like them. And so I feel very courageous when when I do that. And I am proud of myself when I do that. What's something people would be surprised to know about you? Um, I don't, you know, I feel like I'm such an open book to, I, I don't know that anyone would really be surprised to know anything about me anymore. Um, I think the one thing, except people who grew up with me, is that um, I feel like I've been injured a lot and whatnot, but I was actually a really good uh, I did point ball ballet. I did other dancing. I was a competitive dancer growing up, but I was actually very graceful and I was really good on toe shoes. And, um, I, I love that. So that, that you might be surprised know that, know that about me. All right. The four C's. So if money reality was no object, what car would you want to have? What country would you want to visit? What cuisine would you want to eat? And what celebrity would you want to eat that cuisine with living or dead? Car, I don't know, I used to say Tesla, but now, I don't know, like, if there's some really kind of cool-looking uh, hybrid, like, Mercedes SUV with a good sound system, something like that, probably. I'm not a huge car person, but that would be kind of fun. Uh, country, there's many that I would want to visit. Um, I want to, like, I want to go to Australia, New Zealand. I also want to go to Greece. Um, I also want to go to, like, Tahiti, where there's those little huts over the water. Um, so, I don't know, there, that's several of them. Uh, what cuisine, anything Mediterranean, seriously, give me Kalamata olives and some feta cheese and some olive oil and oh, I'm a happy camper. 
Um, celebrity. <laughs> so this depends. Um, if I wanted to laugh my ass off, I would either do Kate McKinnon or Will Ferrell. I think they would be an absolute hoot. Um, if I wanted interesting conversation and inspiration, um, I think I would do Oprah or Ruth, Gator Bins, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, and of course, if I want eye candy, it's going to be my boyfriend, Jabba Bon Jovi. So there we go. <laughs> uh, my favorite go-to movie. I have a lot of these, but it's gotta be Breakfast Club. I can recite that whole movie, every single line. And, uh, yeah, it's just, I love it. Love it. Love it. Breakfast Club, hands down. Oh, your go-to song. There are so many of those. It could be a Bon Jovi one. It could be a pink one. Um, I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna say Sir Mix a Lot Baby Got Back. So there we go. Because <laughs> why not? Um, your signature dance move. Um, I would say like like the chest the chest pump, you know, where you're like I don't know, or shaking your booty or something like that. Uh, in another life, your job or career would be. Uh, I was laughing about this. I think when I interviewed Kristen Hadid because I used to always want to be a singer. I walked around like talking into my thumb for years, but I cannot sing like a note. So if I had the gift of singing, 100%, I would love to do that. Um, but I don't. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, um, terrorize you with my singing, but I don't know. Um, I don't know. Once upon a time, I thought maybe I'd be a psychologist. Um, and then I shifted careers, which is kind of like it. So I don't know. I'll just say if I, if I, a magic wand and I could sing, there you go. I would be a singer. Um, what's something you can't live without? I cannot live without my music. Like music makes my world go around. My life is a soundtrack. Like I can make, I can make you a soundtrack or a playlist for any occasion. I cannot not have music. Like, oh my goodness. Something in your ordinary daily life that makes your heart happy. Uh, my morning greeting and kisses from my puppies, Daisy and Finnegan makes me just, oh, makes my heart so happy. They're so happy to see you. And uh, Peyton's laugh, my son's laugh, for sure. And what are you grateful for right now? You know, I am grateful that we've all been vaccinated, uh, that we didn't have COVID, that my loved ones are safe. I'm grateful that we've got a wonderful, supportive community of people. Uh, it takes a village to navigate this world and your kids and um I'm, I'm just really grateful that things are starting to emerge and starting to feel um a little normal so there, there's a lot of gratitude i have right now for sure so there you have it that's the uh first first edition of ask me anything we'll probably do this again and now you know a little more about me uh, our next episode, we're back to interviews. So hope you got some wonderful nuggets and please don't forget to subscribe and share. Thank you so much for listening to show up as a leader. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can find us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Rosie Ward, and you can find me online at drrosieward.com where you'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, check out the books I'm reading and hear from the people I'm talking to. You can also get more information on what I'm up to professionally, including my coaching and speaking services. You can also find me on LinkedIn at rward, Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Rosie Ward, or email me at rosie at drrosieward.com. And I just want to remind you to remember that you have the choice every day to show up as a leader. So choose courage over comfort, embrace your humanity, and never 
ever dull your sparkle. Take care, everyone.